Oh boy. Hello. How are we doing? This is a Not The Top 20 podcast. It's the Monday pod. We are sponsored by Betfair. I'm Ali Maxwell. He's George Ennick and we love all things EFL. Today, perhaps more than ever, it feels like there is so much to talk about across all three leagues. So much so it, it both excites my soul and also hurts my head somewhat. We'd have an easier life if we just covered the Prem and we could go, Harland, eh? It's like a robot. It's like they built him in a lab. Who do you say is the EFL player most like Erling Haaland? Probably Andy Carroll. Definitely Andy Carroll. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be. I'd actually like to build a prototype player, maybe mixing together three players that's Erling Haaland. I'm going to do that, okay. but I'm not going to do that live because of the aforementioned 153 talking points. George Ellick, why don't we start in the championship? Why don't we start with good cop, bad cop? Why don't we start with bad cop? Plenty of news coming out of plenty of clubs at the moment. Where will you go for this? Yeah, the bad cop was chosen um, before the news this morning. Um, my bad cop is, is Middlesbrough Football Club, just in general, after what was uh, an abject 1-0 uh, defeat at Coventry on Saturday. Um, since then, for those who haven't seen... Um, Chris Wilder has been sacked. His contract has been terminated at Middlesbrough, um, which maybe doesn't really come as a massive surprise. Uh, we'll get onto that in a second. I'm just going to quickly talk about the game and why they're bad cop first. I mean, this was a really bad performance from Borough uh, up against the Coventry side who have been conceding so many goals this season, whose XG against is, is very, very poor. They've started the season badly, uh, albeit part of that is because they had to play so many games early on in the season away from home. Um, but even so, for, for Borough to be... Uh, one nil down after Victor Gokares, um kind of did what he does so well. Is there a player in the in the championship that I would more like to kind of get in behind and bear down on goal than, than Gyok? Probably not. Um, that seems to be uh, his his forte, and, and he did well to score uh, to to get the one uh, one nil up after seventeen minutes. But it was the manner of the of the display. It was the manner of the of the defeat. Um, Barra only had six shots in the whole game. Um, three of those were from outside the area. Two of those were blocked. So only kind of four genuine um, shots that reach the goal uh, all game. And when you're behind for that long, that is uh, pretty troubling. And, you know, it's, we often say on this podcast, when when the data is good and the results are bad um, or vice versa, one of two things happens. Normally, if the performances stay good, the, the results will come. Um, or because defeats can obviously trigger changes by for management style, can trigger uh, crises of confidence. Um, sometimes the the performances themselves can can kind of regress towards the level of the results. And I think with Barra, that is what happened because yes, they've been good this season at times. Yes, the data projects pretty well and they've been incredibly wasteful. Um, but this was a, a performance befitting of a team who sat their manager and who um, finished up in the relegation zone, just totally devoid of ideas of, of any method of, of attack you know it's it's mad to me that we we're now seeing Isaiah Jones such a crucial part of their of their team last season coming off the bench and having an impact when he came on he was, he was very lively but I think that just goes to show that when things are going badly as a manager you have to try everything in order to improve it and um and for Wilder this is this has resulted in the end of his tenure um there was a tweet from Mark O'Hare 
um, who is, of course, um, the the owner of We Love Betting and, and, a, and a tipster across many different um, betting websites. Uh, just with the the data so far of, of, of Chris Wilder's borough, who were third in the table for expected points, fourth for expected goals, second for non-penalty expected goals, fourth for, for XG in open play, fourth for shots, fifth for shots inside the box, and 17th for shots on target. Now, I know there will be plenty of people listening, although probably if you if you hate the data side of things, you probably don't listen to more than one episode of this podcast. Um, who will listen to that and use that as an example of, well, that just goes to show that XG is nonsense. I don't really agree. Um, what I think that probably shows is that you know, narratives are, are driven very much by by results rather than um, the than kind of the the actual um, data that goes into it. Although, of course, the fact that Borough have been behind makes a, a big difference to the way that they normally go about their games. But I, I'm personally not necessarily convinced that um, all the blame here has to fall at Chris Wilder's feet. I think when you're a manager, you have to set up a team to um, have the better chances in games and you can't be held to account if Duncan Watmore or Marcus Force or Rodrigo Munez um, can't put the ball in the back of the net. I think the recruitment in the summer was was very, very poor. Um, I think looking back now, you know, Chris Wilder came into the club midway through a season and doing what he does best. You know, he, he got about a massive improvement in Borough in a very short space of time. But after one transfer window and an FA Cup run, things started to go a little bit rocky and they, they ended up falling outside the playoffs. And then after a summer transfer window where he was being linked to, to Burnley, you know, and then into this season being linked to Bournemouth, suddenly with the benefit of hindsight, you kind of think maybe Chris Wilder going to a club that had a director of football in Kieran Scott, um, having had such an issue getting on with his role and not having control over recruitment, at Sheffield United was maybe a, a culturally bad fit. And that's what I, th- I think is the issue here. It, it felt like Chris Wilder wasn't happy with the club all season. It felt like he wasn't particularly happy with the signings that the club made. And the relationship between the fans and the manager has, has kind of steadily broken down over the course of, of many, many bad results. Um, so in my mind, despite things obviously going very wrong this season, um, it doesn't really necessarily uh, concern me about Wilder getting another job, whether that is, you know, he's been linked to the Bournemouth job in the Premier League or, or the, the Championship. I think he need, needs to probably be wiser with the job that he does take to ensure that he's working in a structure that he thinks he will be happy in. Um, but I think Barrow made the right decision. And, and as I say, the, the, the performance on Saturday was just one where um, despite some games a season where you can point to bad luck, there was nothing unlucky about about that one win for, one win for Coventry and all credit to Mark Robbins for, for that. When I said a few months ago that I thought Borough had hired one of the best managers in the world, I didn't specify whether that was top 10, top 100, <laughs> top 1,000. I've had a few messages about that in the last 24 hours. So I just wanted to clear that up. I, th- I still think Chris Wilder is is almost certainly in the top thousand managers in, in, in football. So I'll stick with that. Nothing's changed. Make stick to your guns. I don't think, you know, as I said, a, a, a bad eight weeks at Middlesbrough in a time where he, you know, it, it feels quite likely to me that he was punting himself for that Burnley job in, in the summer, um, given all the all the rumours. Uh, I, I just don't think it's a massive, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that he is a manager where things have gone wrong. You know, at Oxford, he wasn't sacked. He moved on to Northampton, but he went and took over a team bottom of Oxford's league and he, and he was basically forced out of the club um, by just a disgruntled fan base. At Sheffield United, he was sacked with, with, with Blades being very poor in, in, the, in, the, in the Premier League. He's not a manager that is... Uh, bad runs aren't uncommon to him. 
um, at all. It's just happened a bit quicker this time. And I think um, I think what I, I would say is I think there are reasons for that. I think what I would say is, yeah, of course I'm I'm not just going to go against what what I think deep down because of a, a poor eight weeks. I was mainly being flippant there. I still think he's an excellent football manager for many of the reasons that you've spoken about. I worry maybe about his relationship management, if I can coin mm, a, a phrase. I agree. Probably, probably the first time I've ever used that on the pod. But that certainly seems at play here. And, and I suppose, given his personality type, that that is always going to be at least a threat now um, when you hire Chris Wilder. It didn't end well at Sheffield United after an absolutely magnificent regime and reign. Um, uh, and and it hasn't worked here. I mean, their first 21 league games, this is a stat from Dex in NTT 20 squad, who was sifting through the wreckage this morning, a Borough fan, um, trying to work things out. 21 league games under Wilder. The first 21, uh, they won 12, drew four, lost five. That was 40 points from 21 games, just under two PPG, and beat Manchester United and Tottenham in the FA Cup. As you mentioned, the Burnley stuff came back in April, the Bournemouth stuff last week. That's always seemed to undermine him. Um, We'll never know quite how much he was to blame for that. In the summer, I certainly felt and said if he could get a firm grip on things like he had done to start with, um, then I expected them to be an excellent team. And he just never did. It seemed to be the opposite. And I'm left asking, why was Wilder so tetchy all the time why was he seemingly quite flighty uh, you know as you've said suggested maybe punting himself for other jobs why why so rushed all the time why why in the in the transfer window when there were weeks to go was he so openly rushed with stuff uh, why did he never seem calm when when things weren't horrific at you know, pre-season things weren't horrific, but he didn't seem calm. To start the season, sure, results weren't great, but performances were perfectly good. Why wasn't there just a, a sense of calm? Maybe it doesn't just come from the manager as well. This, to me, never seemed collaborative. It all seemed too focused on Wilder. You mentioned Kieran Scott, the head of football. Um, they've got a CEO in Neil Bowser as well. The parts don't seem to mix together very well. And that was the case before Wilder joined as well. That was the case when Neil Warnock was there. It, it feels like they've got a few different ways of approaching things, but not one singular way. And so I think you have to question Steve Gibson as well, the owner, which, you know, he has been owner of Middlesbrough for 30 years. There are tons of things you cannot question about Steve Gibson, Middlesbrough owner. But I don't think he's really cracked the actual football side of things, which sounds stupid, but I guess I mean letting people run his football club and do very, very well. You know, the the Mm. last five seasons have been five seasons of underachievement overall for Middlesbrough, whether it was um, Ito Karanka, whether it was Gary Monk, whether it was Neil Warnock, whether it was Jonathan Woodgate, now that it's Chris Wilder, there has to be a a sense of looking inwards as well. Um, You know, the on-pitch stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I can't explain it. It goes against, no, it, it, it doesn't go against. It just doesn't marry up with what I saw for the most part. And that's not including the last couple of games, by the way. But it doesn't marry up with what I saw when I watched Borough. It doesn't marry up with how I understand football, or how matches are won, how teams win games, why teams are good teams or not. Um, it's true that, that performances fell off a cliff in the last few weeks. And I can't explain it other than just talking about things like power dynamics, personality clashes, motivation issues for the players due to, to what was going on. And um, there you go. That's it. 
I, I, just just on that as well, because I, I think we have to mention. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I'm a, I'm a Chris Wilder apologist here, because you know, I think on a personal level, sure, uh, like certainly things haven't gone right. And, and I think if you look back at his successes at Oxford, Northampton, Sheffield United, when things are going well, he's he's so involved. He, he's just the complete opposite of what he, you know, this kind of slightly bitter man that, that he seems to have been over the last kind of six months at Middlesbrough. And, and I think Borough fans saw that in, in the early part of his, camp, of, his, of his tenure as well. You know, when he buys into things, he's very much present. But for Kieran Scott, the head of football, I think questions have to be asked of him because I don't think the recruitment was very good. Um, I mean, I'm surprised that Marcus Force hasn't been able to, to be that kind of clinical striker that they needed. Although having said that, he, he hasn't been given much of a chance. He's only played 250 odd minutes so far. Um, and... I think if you are a head of football or a director of football who appoints a manager who ends up not enjoying working in a, in a structure, including a director of football, then that not only is that a failure from Wilder, but I think it's a, a recruitment failure as well. And, and it's probably no surprise to see that, you know, the type of manager they're already being linked to, you know, Rob Edwards, I think for Edwards to, to walk out, to, to be sat from, from Watford and walk into the borough job would be a coup for him. But you look at what he's done before uh, in terms of working on the Rich Hughes at Forest Green, uh, taking on a Watford job where he'd have been very aware immediately that you know the training pitch was his domain and everything else that went on away from that was nothing really to do with him. Stylistically, you know, you've got a, a manager who had massive success playing uh, wing backs with a left wing back in Nicky Cadden, whose delivery was elite, and on the right hand side, a ball carrier. In uh, in Kane Wilson, well, I'm pretty sure Isaiah Jones and Ryan Giles fit pretty well into that mould as well. So it'll be interesting to see if he does get the job. But you you have to think that the first question that is asked at these interviews from from Kieran Scott should be, are you happy? Are you aware that non grass matters will 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 not belong to you? Um, and if the answer is is no, uh, which I'm sure it would have been for Chris Wilder if he'd been honest with himself, then they never would have made the appointment in the first place. I would love to see Carlos Corbran get the Middlesbrough job. It doesn't mean I wouldn't love to see Rob Edwards get the Middlesbrough job, by the way. But I just personally thinking about Corbran would love to see him get a shot at this job. Would love to see how it goes, to be honest with you. If uh, ambition, by which we mean budgets and potential budgets, was an issue at Huddersfield, well, it shouldn't be an issue here at Middlesbrough. He proved himself to be a magnificent tactician, motivator, squad builder, all of those things uh, at Huddersfield last season. And also, I think from a Borough perspective, the fact of him being so different to Wilder in so many ways could be uh, a good thing, could work well for the squad. So I I would personally love to see Corbran get the job um, and just see how that goes. Same with Rob Edwards, but I personally believe Corbran should be the front runner, has done more to suggest that he would be a strong fit. Scott Wilson from um, the Northern Echo, who I think is a bit of a uh, you know a prophet when it comes to Borough news. He said that the three um, they're looking at are Gary O'Neill, Rob Edwards, and Carlos Corbran. So we'll see. Gary O'Neill. Wow, I didn't mm. know about that. Anyway, um, well done for Coventry for winning their first match of the season, somewhat overshadowed by this news, and and that's a shame for them. But that's more like it. A much better performance, albeit against this this Borough team that were clearly lacking in a lot of minerals. Um, but only their second home game of the season for Coventry. I spoke on the betting show. I said that I I'm I wasn't am not hugely worried about them being mired in some relegation battle just yet. Not until things even themselves out a little bit in terms of the fixtures that they've played and where they've played them. Um, but no Hamer, no Callum O'Hare, 
no problem here. No doubt who deserved to win this game. And, and uh, Wilder, the main thing I was going to bring up about Wilder on this pod before he got sacked was that he called Giok the best player in the division, which I thought was a nice um, quote. Wow. Uh, and I note that Casey Palmer had a good game as well. How about some good cop? I'm going to talk some positives for a moment, and I'm going to go to West Brom to Swansea 3. Uh, this was a weekend where the three Welsh clubs in the English pyramid or in the top four tiers of the English pyramid showed backbone, passion, desire, great traits. Uh, Cardiff came back from behind to get a draw against Burnley, but mainly I'm talking about Swansea and Newport County, who I'll certainly be talking about later. Swansea going to West Brom. I knew something was up with this game, George, when I heard that Matthew Sorinola had scored from a corner because <laughs> Matthew Sorinola shouldn't even be up for corners. He is very small, which is normally a prerequisite for staying back from corners, particularly when you're a, a wing-back, full-back type. He has... This is so good. The second lowest aerial win percentage of any outfield player in the championship this season. An 11% aerial win percentage. Only Amazing. lower. The only player lower than that is Chris Willock, by the way. QPR's Chris Willock with a 9% aerial win percentage. So Sorinola's up for the corner. No one really knows why. And I'm sorry to say it, but David Button is a problem in goal for yeah. West Brom. And he is not helping their current situation. He's not the only one, but he's not helping their current situation. At nil-nil, corner comes in, pretty regulation stuff. Button misjudges it. It hits Sorinola six yards out. It's a goal. And mainly I want to talk about the second half from a Swans point of view. And maybe some narratives that are just starting to be busted or at least can start to, to change. Because once a narrative sets in, it can be difficult to change. But there's nothing I like more, I think, than a narrative being turned over. And I'm talking about heart and spirit and backbone and all this stuff that gets spoken about a lot in football, football discourse, less so maybe on this podcast than on others, because we find it difficult to truly know how much spirit and heart and backbone a team has. It's difficult to measure, but some teams are spoken of as having it in spades and some teams are spoken of as lacking it. And because it's difficult to measure, um, it probably helps with narratives. They can linger maybe a little bit longer than is fair. There are a few things that get used as, as a sort of proxy to measure backbone, if you will. Um, for example, late goals, conceded or scored. That's quite a helpful proxy. And Swansea, in the first 10 games of the season, conceded five goals in the last 10 minutes of games, most of them in actual injury time, all of them throwing away points. And that leads to questioning of attitude and character and you know matters of the heart and the head um away from home Swansea last season didn't look good at all I always felt they were pretty vulnerable the phrase they're a bit soft gets used a lot and I've definitely used that when talking about Swansea so I'm absolutely part of this so to be one nil up at half time at the Hawthorns and then two one down within 20 minutes of the second half you can feel the narrative starting to snowball you know what's expected to happen at that point and that is that swans will fold and west brom will go on and win this game and it'll all be about swansea just being a little soft not being able to to hold on to things that they might have earned and then enter olivier and cham and michael obafemi both of them somewhat maligned this season uh, within the Swansea fan base and Cham for what's considered to be just poor performances. Obafemi for off-field stuff, for uh, getting a little upset that he hadn't got a move to Burnley uh, and not really being involved recently. And Cham, brilliant strike from range to get them level. Then a very soft penalty given away to West Brom, saved 
by Bender. And then Michael Obafemi, who hasn't started a game since that deadline day move was scuppered, who came on against Hull before the international break to a smattering of boos from the Swans fan, then went away, scored for Ireland and celebrated by sticking his fingers in his ears, which only went further to upset the fans, comes off the bench here and wins them the game, wins them a famous away victory. It was great scenes. It was a well-taken goal. And there's a chance that this game smashes narratives to pieces and gets good times rolling. Uh, Swans have got Watford away in midweek, so certainly not an easy fixture to come. But I'm seeing positive things at Swansea at the moment. I'm pleased with what I'm seeing from them. They're in the midst of a big old seeded batch, but I think they might be up there with the better teams within it. Uh, I guess there's a bit of a bad cop element to this as well, I'm afraid, George. Uh, West Brom have only won one game this season. And over the weekend, I saw a lot of who will last longer, Bruce or Chris Wilder? Well, Bruce has won the battle, but things aren't great there, it's fair to say. No, I mean, they were, they were I mean, unlike Borough, this was, there were similarities with, with West Brom's performances all season. Um, I know um, the fan base were not happy with, with how they started the game, and rightly so. You know, Swansea came out and, and were on top until they scored, um, but West Brom did enough probably to get at least something out of the game. Um, but when, you're, when your chips are down and your luck is down, Carl and Grant uh, missing a penalty where if he'd put it away, it's probably three points for, for West Brom. Um, but instead, uh, as you say, um, you know, Obafemi scores a brilliant finish. Both goals from Swansea, unbelievably good goals. Um, but, you know, within Cham, it's a, it's a long-range strike. And, and with Obafemi, it's a very difficult skill, kind of the, the swivel and, and shot into the far corner. Um, Bruce will just feel like every time teams go forward against them, they are incapable of of stopping them from scoring and, and themselves they're being incredibly wasteful. So um, it, it's similar to the Wilder, Wilder case where, and I think most West Brom fans want Bruce out at this stage. Um, it's whether, you know, Ron Gourlay and, and the people making the, the decisions at West Brom keep faith in their man who does seem to be going through a difficult period in terms of, of pure luck. Um, even if I know, I mean, it, it's so difficult this because I know West Brom fans listening and the same with Barrow fans will say the performances are not good enough, but it has to be a, a level where you you look at the the chance creation per game and you see that West Brom are consistently creating a better chance than their opposition and not getting the three points where you've got to think, if we keep doing this, things are going to improve. Um, so it's a difficult decision for them to make. It's also kind of at odds with what we've seen so often from, from Steve Bruce. You know, Bruce's teams have often been um, the data busters rather than the ones falling foul. And maybe this is, um, you know, variants coming uh, over the course of a career for Bruce uh, at this stage. But um, I, I think he, he probably would have gone by now. I mean, this might age badly if he's sat this afternoon before this goes out. But um, I think it looks to me like if he, if he hasn't gone by, you know, he'll, he'll have taken training this morning um, and, and he's going to get an opportunity to show that he's still the person to take them forward. Okay. Plenty more in the championship. In fact, there were six away wins in the 12 fixtures over the weekend. We've already discussed one of them. That was Swansea beating West Brom. Let's work through the others. George, we're going to have to pause as well to discuss another managerial departure while we do so. Let's tackle that now by talking Hull nil, Luton 2. As for the game itself, which I watched on Friday night, uh, the first thing I noted was Luton had some very nice corner routines. Uh, the first one resulted in the opener. Adebayo peeled off, hit a great strike off the bar, which hit uh, the Hull defender Jones and went in for 1-0. Uh, but this game, oh, I should say Alan Sheehan, who uh, people remember 
being an excellent player for Luton, now on the coaching staff. And I gather he is the mastermind between these set piece, uh, these nice little funky bits of set piece action. Uh, but this one was about Henry Lansbury, uh, or for some reason, as me and my brother have always called him the <laughs> Earl, the Earl of Lansbury, which goes back to. I thought to- you were going to say Henri, which is what everyone called him when he was an Arsenal youth player. Well, no, we've got our own nicknames. Thank you very much. Uh, this stems from okay. a football manager save from probably, oh, I don't know, 2008. Uh, the Earl of Lansbury was at the heart of a, of a Blackburn Rovers side that we had, and we've always loved him. And he scored an absolute delight. Um, I don't even know how you accurately describe it, George. You normally like talking about goals. Think Thiago for Liverpool against Porto late last year, but make it further out. And even more precise and just more EFL-y, which just kisses is... the turf. Oh, mm. his first league goal since the 21st of April 2018. Incidentally, my brother's birthday, that. So a nice nod there. Um, he takes less than a shot per game, Henry Lansbury. And I'd like to be the first to say, do more shots, Henry Lansbury, because you're good at them. He, he is part of, of what for me is the most impressive chunk of this Luton side who are in good form at the moment after a, a poor start to the season Campbell Clark Lansbury the midfield three they are very high performing in all aspects of the game certainly out of possession but more than good enough on it as well and and Luton are in good shape but we have to talk about Hull and this is where I'm going to throw to you uh, Andy Dawson was the caretaker for this one because eight hours before kickoff and 10 days after their last fixture in which time they'd had a whole weekend off uh, Hull sacked Shotter Arvaladze. Shots fired. Uh, yeah, I, I, there was a bit of outrage here, wasn't there? Um, because he was sacked on the morning of a game, which is obviously very rare anyway. And when you when you also consider the two weeks in which they could have they could have done it and brought in um a new man earlier in the in the international break, it doesn't look great. However, I don't think that in itself is a reason not to sack someone, um, especially when coming into this game, Hull had been beaten 3-1 at QPR lost back-to-back home games against Sheffield United and Stoke 2-0 and 3-0, and then gone to Swansea get beat 3-0. So they came into this off the back of four defeats in a row, conceding 3-2, 3-3, and and scoring one goal. I don't think parting company with Shotter Avaladze just before a game would have much of a negative impact in terms of their chances to win that game that evening. Just quickly, I should say as well, and I think this might have been lost, Ajun Ilijeli had a an accident, a car crash at the start of the international break about about 10 days ago. He's fine. I believe he has a bad arm, but he was at the game on Saturday. I don't know this for sure, but my understanding of the fallout from an accident like that might be that you, your eye is just slightly taken off things like owning a football club. Interesting that choice might, of words. That might have been fallout. a reason. That might have been a reason for the for the late decision is what I'm saying. Um, interesting. And they also said, you know, Ashwin Lashley said in the uh, in his press release afterwards that um, you know that there was it was off the back of multiple meetings with Arvaladze discussing the future of the club where it became apparent um, that he wasn't the person they wanted to take them forward. Which again is is fair. Like I think that's an understandable thing to do. You call in someone, a manager, you say you aren't performing well enough. What are you going to do to change it? And if the answer doesn't satisfy you, then that's the time to, to pull the plug rather than doing it before you give them an opportunity to, to change their mind. I've said it all season. I, I know they started well with their, with their wins early in the campaign. Um, but this whole squad, it, it just isn't a bad squad. There is plenty of quality in there to be a decent championship side. The budget, as we said pre-season, must be a top 10 budget. It has to be, given the players they brought in. You know, your Seri, 
Tufan, you know, these players, Estupinian, these are not cheap players. These are players who've played elite European football and aren't even necessarily at the end of their career. Um, so, yeah, I, I would I would say that Arvaladze looked to me to be the weak link. Um, you know, he's spoken about the possibility of Carlos Corberan coming back to the championship with Borough. Carlos Carvajal seems to be the, the front runner for this job, which I think would be a really good appointment. You know, he's someone who... Um, I think the job that he did at Sheffield Wednesday has aged incredibly well. You know, under Chancery, um, he managed to take Sheffield Wednesday to the brink of the Premier League. Um, players who were so good for that team, um, the likes of, of uh, Forestieri and Reach, uh, have never hit those heights or anywhere near them since he left the club. Um, at Swansea, you know, he came in and won. You know, he had an unbelievable spell in the Premier League when he first came in before they got relegated. And then he's been at Braga for four years. Braga always. You know, really having to punch above their weight in order to be the fourth. Well, I mean, to try and challenge the, the big three in Portugal, consistently finishing fourth, consistently doing well in, in European competition as well. I, I think Carvajal mirrors the kind of recruitment we've seen from Hull this summer um, in terms of probably being a bit of a coup for the level. Somebody who's proven himself, and not only do I like it for that reason, but just the sheer fact alone that he's managed in England, has a relationship with the EFL, has managed in the championship. I think it would be as smart an appointment as you could really see. You know, we saw a, a fair few Turkish names come up in the betting when when the, the news came out last Friday, which wasn't a surprise. Um, but if I was a Hull fan, I'd be I'd be really crossing my fingers for for Carvajal, who, you know, a good a good manager who's had success, who's a very very good character and very popular. Um, yeah, it would be you know it would be a, a a bit of a coup as well. I would be interested in the current second favourite, Sergen Yalcin, being appointed, if only because I spent about an hour researching him on Sunday. And, I mean, he would be a what I would consider a nuclear option. The guy has had the most insane life in football, <laughs> which I'd love to talk about uh, on the next Monday pod if he is appointed. But there's no point in me talking about it now if he's not going to be appointed. So, Hull, uh, well, work to do there. Eight championship managers from the start of the season, gone already. One third, six of them sacked. Uh, and then Alex Neal and Paul Warren, of course, leaving for other jobs. 18 of the 24 current championship clubs have changed their manager within the last 12 months. Plenty for us to talk about on this pod. George, at one manager's first game in charge went very well. Slaven Bilic's happy Hornets went to Stoke on Sunday and won 4-0. His first game in charge went 4-2-3-1, moved away from the Rob Edwards three at the back. Uh, I'm interested to know how you saw this one. It, it looked to me that there wasn't tons in it in the first half, but the fact the scoreline finished 4-0 makes me wonder, was this a Stoke collapse or Watford cutting loose and hitting their straps? A bit of both, I would say. It was, it was a really weird game, uh, I thought, where the first 20 minutes, Watford were, were absolutely superb and, and were well on top. And, and when uh, Ishmaelia saw um, scored the, the first goal, a, a brilliant ball from uh, Hassan Kamara. Uh, it looked like possibly if we had, you know, wavy lines across the pitch in the championship, it may have been ruled out uh, for offside, but uh, it was a good header from Saar and they won it up. Um, and then they kind of kept their foot on the gas for the next 10 minutes after that. But for the second half of the of the first half, uh, Stoke came into the game and, and were, you know, were, were much the better team in my point of view. The, the quality was, was terrible in the second half, that first half, like a lot of misplaced passes, no one really uh, able to do much with the ball, but Stoke certainly having more more territory. And in the second half, uh, 
what for just ease clear really it wasn't like they were consistently on you know on top but the chances they created were, were very very good chances uh really excited to have Imran Loser uh, in the in the championship a player who who you know looked very promising in the Premier League last season Rob Edwards will be incredibly frustrated that he was sacked just when maybe the the, the star player or certainly the best midfielder at the club um, was just about to come back into the fold and his um you know his contribution the fact that he came on five minutes before um, they took a, a two-goal lead, I think is significant because he really changed the game for Watford and, and, and added that bit of quality, a brilliant ball for, for Bayo's uh, goal as well. So um, I think this was just a case with Watford where suddenly when they had Loser, um, Davis and Saar all on the pitch with, um, you know, and also with with uh, Joao Pedro still to come uh, and Aspria looking pretty lively in behind. Um, we're seeing that at this level, having players who are that good in advanced areas means that you don't have to be consistently good for 90 minutes. You don't even have to look particularly um, in control of a game because those are players who are going to get themselves in the final third into positions to win games. And, and that's why, even though in a weird way, it wasn't a particularly impressive performance, similarly, you can't really argue that with the fact that Watford deserved their, their four-goal win. As you can imagine, I am very pleased to see Keenan Davis playing championship football. I didn't expect it, and that makes it all the sweeter. Uh, he's only started two games for Watford, the last one before the international break, and the first one following it. Two goals, plenty of other good things as well. I thought Kamara was very good at left back here. Um, when I saw the Stoke starting 11, I, I, I knew, I'm going to say I knew this wasn't going to go well. It, it gave me really bad vibes. Um, that back three, I spoke about a lot after the Reading game that I went to. I'm just not in on it with Fox at left centre-back, with Flint at centre-back, with Wilmot right centre-back. Having Fosu as a wing-back, I'm not all in on. Having Dujon Sterling on the on his wrong side as the other wing-back, I'm not all in on. Um, the midfield, uh, yeah, I, I have called Lewis Baker one of the best midfielders in the division. I don't think whoever else is playing in Stokes midfield at the moment, whether it's Smallbone and Laurent, as it was, or Klukas or Thompson, any of those guys not doing it for me at the moment. And the Gale Delap front two partnership, I've seen next to nothing from to suggest that they're going to be uh, a really potent front two. So, um, yeah, didn't like the look of the starting 11, didn't go well. Alex Neal's got, got a lot of work to do there, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Norwich got yeah, a win. Um, just, just quickly on, on Delap, because I think it's interesting, because he's a player who comes to the championship, probably in terms of pure reputation. Um, he's got to have one of the best pedigrees and reputation of any young Premier League starlet who's ever come on loan to the championship. Um, there's been a couple, you know, obviously McAtee at, at Sheffield United this season as well, Tyler Morton at, at Blackburn too. Uh, but I think Delap is probably the, the, the most high profile, the one who most people expect to, to go to the top. And I think he's been, you know, I've said it already on this pod a couple of weeks ago, I think he's been pretty poor um, and just seems to really lack the technical <laughs> ability to, to be of use. Um, and I think maybe because there is a rise of profile of good to PL2 players in the Premier League, I think there is an, an assumption that they are of the requisite quality to be a good championship player. And I'm not entirely sure that's true, whether that is a strengthening of the of the calibre of championship talent or just because these guys are generally being over-egged and, and actually playing up front for a, you know, when you're a big physical specimen like the lap is playing for, for youth teams in the best team where they're going to create chances um, can, can kind of cloud judgment a bit. Um, I think there's, we're starting to see a bit of maybe lazy 
uh, recruitment in terms of, of of clubs just going out and, and getting these players who have big reputations because they've made a couple of appearances on the bench in the Premier League uh, who aren't actually... I mean, even Lewis Bate at Oxford is kind of fitting to that as well. I think you have to be clever in the loan market uh, and go after to quality and calibre rather than the reputation. I absolutely see where you're coming from. The devil's advocate within me would say there have been quite a few players over the last five or six years who haven't had a very good first five to ten games. For sure. Whose quality has then bled through the surface. So let's yeah, wait yeah. and see. For, but I mean, first, so, and, and, that's, and that's the other thing I find annoying about this loan is that from Manchester City's point of view, why are you sending him to a team who are going to play two up front who aren't going to have be particularly possession heavy? It doesn't make any sense from a development point of view. Um, the role that he's having to play at Stoke is 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 nothing like the role he'd, he'd ever play at City if he was if he was successful. And it seems like this day and age, sending a player out on loan from the Premier League to a Championship club based on where his father is coach and used to play um, for a club as as well run as City uh, seems very very strange. But maybe that's for a, a different podcast. George, it happens a lot, but maybe more than ever, I've got what I would call pod duration anxiety we're uh with 35 minutes in we've not spoken about many football matches so uh, that's just a, a little nod to you uh, and mainly to me to let's move through the gears now blackpool nil norwich won at well it looked to me like blackpool had a great start to this game before the wind was already taken out of their sails after a, a bad mistake from dom thompson sent pookie through and, and pookie with a lovely Pookie 1v1 finish. Uh, there were a few other chances for, for Pookie in this game. And I, I think once ahead, Norwich probably managed it all right. But I'll certainly take note of, of the early performance from Blackpool here. Uh, I thought they looked pretty impressive. So I'll be keeping a close eye on them uh, in their game in midweek. Mainly, I just want to talk about Marcelino Nunez. Uh, that is the case every week, but particularly this week, I just want to say he is a joke. Uh, there are mm. not many players like him in his position in this division. And what you'll notice is I've stopped short of calling him the best player in the division because I'm still percolating that one. And I think one should have to wait maybe half a season before you start. Is he one of the best midfielders in the world? <laughs> he is. He is. He's one of the best midfielders in the world. Uh, his free kick off the bar here was just magnificent. His passing range, his ball carrying, his skill, his tenacity as well off the ball. Uh, Dean Smith was, was talking glowingly about his character and how obsessed with he is with football. And it's all just great to see. And I'm loving watching him. So uh, Norwich still picking up a lot of points, heading to Reading in midweek. Fortress Madstad. Wait and see what happens here. Uh, George, Bristol City won QPR 2. Sort of classic seeded batch this, in that you could have told me any outcome would happen pre-game and I'd have believed you as it was. QPR leaving with three. Would you have believed me if I said it was 7 all? Yes. Any Bristol City game, I'd believe you if you said it was 7 0. So gullible. <laughs> this, I mean, QPR have to be the under the radar team championship 22 23, don't they? Hello. Just quietly going about, just quietly going about their business, just quietly shuffling their way into, into fifth place with 18 points from 11 games um, and improving as they go. Uh, this was. A, a game against the Bristol City side who came into it in, in good form, who we know, well, no, I mean, they, they lost their two games before this, but have, have started the season well, let's say, and those defeats were against uh, Norwich and Burnley. So, um, you know, nothing to, um, nothing to get too worried about. Then um, their home form had been okay. Uh, but QPR were, were the better side. They were, they were deserving of their 
of their win. Uh, Stephanie Hansen getting the first and Tyler Roberts getting the second, going 2-0 up after after 22 minutes and not really letting up either. Um, yes, Naki Wells got a uh, a goal, um, which I think for those of us who, uh, anyone who followed my tweet about backing for top goal scorer, just got to cross our fingers that the dubious goal panel don't watch the um, the angle from behind where it looks like it might have been going wide. Yeah, I mean, QPR were, were, were good value. I think that uh, Mick Beale, you know, we mentioned in the summer that we'd heard Mick Beale was quite a big part of, of Aston Villa and, and the good start that Stephen Gerrard had made in his managerial career. And every week that goes by, that feels more and more likely as Gerrard's star um, starts to fall and and, um, and Mick Beale's rises. Maybe we're going to have a situation like Alan Nil and Chris Wilder where in, in five years' time, Stephen Gerrard will be Mick Beale's assistant. Um, you know, the role reversal. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, they're... I think they're playing very well. Interesting to note they're, they're kind of playing without a an out-and-out striker. It was Roberts, Chair and Willock kind of starting as that those floating three, uh, a similar kind of way that we're seeing Sunderland play at the moment. Um, just a lot of ballers uh, out in front, balling out together, uh, which is always fun to see too. So yeah, QPR, um, really, really good performance. And I think probably on a normal week would have been your bad cop because it was uh, a big away win. Or even a good cop. Yeah. Sorry, good cop. Yeah, that's what I meant. QPR... Queen's Park Rangers or quietly progressing rapidly? Because when they look good, they do look very good. And you can start talking yourself into big things. Mate, I love that. Grand plans, prospects. You know, the, the fullbacks, Parl and Laird, providing a lot of attacking width and goodness. Willock and Chair giving top level, top championship level quality, buzzing all over. Uh, a three-man midfield providing protection and ball progression and then the centre-backs Balogun and Clark Salter had a good game here which is only really notable because that means Dickey and Dunn both absent so that represents I think quite strong looking centre-back depth at this moment in Mm. time so yeah positive stuff but I sort of feel QPR and Bristol City it's just classic seeded batch stuff like sometimes they look really good and you talk yourself into stuff sometimes they don't look very good and that's the same for Bristol City and here QPR looked good and Bristol City didn't look good but on another day Bristol City will look but good I think QPR won't look good on that I think there's I agree that Bristol City are the team who are probably fairly um, inconsistent although they have lost three games in a row but this is probably the first where the fans will look at that and be like well that is a game that we should at least be drawing and should probably be winning at home to, to, to another team in and around us uh, for QPR, it does feel to me like a manager comes in, it's his first ever management job. They start the season finding their feet and now they're really hitting their stride. You know, they are, um, you know, they've won, what is it? They've won uh, four of the last six games. The only defeat coming away at Swansea um, it is a good run of form. I think they're operating at a high level now and I don't see any reason why they would necessarily dip off. Um, I think they're, they're, they're certainly top six contenders. Yeah, well, you were schmoozing Bristol City a couple of weeks ago, so forgive me if I'm not believing. Still am. Anyway, uh, Rotherham nil, Wigan 2. Big away win for the Latics. A touch of offside, I thought, when White scampered into or onto a ball into the channel ahead of the first mm. goal. Um, hard to tell from the angle we had, but uh, cutting it back for Will Keane, who just is finishing so good, Will Keane. Always makes me happy. Um, and then... The most notable thing after that was an amazing goal line clearance from James McLean uh, after Ogbené had turned into Thierry Henry briefly. Um, <laughs> one of the most Henry-esque bits of attacking play I think I've ever seen in the championship. Uh, and then Tom Naylor iced the victory from a set piece. 2-0 winners Wigan. Uh, Rotherham, of course, went into that game coached on an interim basis by Lee Peltier and, and Richard Wood, two current players. Richard Wood started the game. Peltier was the one on the touchline. 
I felt on the betting show that that, that would favour Wigan just because of experience and pre-match preparation. And in the end, it played out pretty much how we thought. It means that Wigan have, have won their last three away games. Uh, it means that, that this season, there's a very consistent Wigan performance and pretty consistent results as well. If you take out a 5-1 defeat to Burnley, where Burnley scored with basically every shot they took, they played nine, scored 10, conceded six. They've taken 16 points from, from those nine games, the sort of the nine normal games. And I just find them so secure in themselves, the way that they play, the way that they go about picking up points. Um, they're very calm and composed when chances come. Good finishes like Keane help with that, Broadhead as well, of course. Uh, and then Callum Lang is now out for a while, which is a bit of a shame. The positive is we may see more starts for, for Tello Asgard, who started here as well. So um, that's that's a sort of small positive um, in one sense. But at the back is where they're best, as I say. Not very many goals conceded in, in the majority of their games this season. I just love how they're a team that's that they've won more points than almost any other team in the EFL in the last 15 months since the start of last season. And it's just pure collective. Like the star player, there isn't one really. Uh, Keane at times, McLean at times, I guess. But no one getting linked with big moves or the sort of thing that that normally happens when a team is picking up points like this. At any given time, there's about eight key players for Wigan, not just one. And I think all that's to say is up Liam Richardson because he is just fantastic. Uh, George Rotherham are set to appoint Matt Taylor as their manager. They'll mm. be lift, lifting him out of the strong embrace of, of Exeter City, whose fans will be very sad to see him go. But I, I get a sense of understanding as well the, the opportunity for Matt Taylor to move up into the championship too good to turn down what do you make of this appointment uh, of course it was heavily reported Rotherham were in for Mark Bonner at the back end of last week he decided to stay in League One with Cambridge yeah it's interesting I mean it's interesting to me that you've got the two sides who fought it out at the top of League Two last season in Forest Green and Exeter Forest Green's manager gets picked up by a club just relegated from the Premier League um, off the back of one season. And then you've got Matt Taylor, who I would argue, you know, has also done a very good job in the first two months of their season into, into League One, um, who's been at the helm for longer and has, had, therefore has more experience. And the job that he's going to end up taking is a team who were recently promoted out of League One. Um, I don't know if that shows, um, no, Edwards has obviously got the, the pedigree having coached England youth teams and, and other, and, you know, uh, Premier League Academy teams as well. So maybe he's a more fashionable choice. And of course, when he flashes that smile, it's impossible to say no to him at any time anyway. So, but it, it, it is interesting to me that Taylor maybe hasn't been able to, um, or doesn't, no, not necessarily doesn't back himself, but you maybe would have thought he'd be aspiring for higher. Having said that, I think it's a brilliant job. I think they are a club who have proven themselves to have more patience than, than any other. I think it's fairly obvious that if Matt Taylor oversees or takes charge of a Rotherham relegation, he will get the opportunity to take them back into the championship unless things really do unravel and they're not happy with the performances. Um, so, yeah, all in all, I think it's a great place to go, um, you know, in a similar way to Exeter. It kind of it feels like it's a similar club to Exeter in some ways in terms of the way the club is run and um, it's fairly insular and, and likes to take care of its own. Um, he's going somewhere where, unlike Edwards, um, he will be afforded time and support in order to, to implement his methods. You know, he's, I think he has absolutely proven himself now um, to be a very effective manager at setting teams up. I think he probably learned a lot from the first two years he had at Exeter, where things were fine, but not spectacular. Um, and if Rotherham are happy to afford him a similar leash to the one that they gave Paul Warren, then, then I think it will, um, it will be a good 
long-term appointment and probably a bit safer than Bonner as well. It does feel like with Mark Bonner, as much as I absolutely love him and I really, really can't wait to see what, what happens in his career, the link that he has with Cambridge is so strong um, that it does kind of spook me a little bit when he moves on. Um, whereas with Taylor, it does feel like um, it's a more, you know, it, it, it pretty seems like a more seamless transition yeah. from apart from somebody who's, who's worked since the age of, of 16 at, at the same club. I mean, it is, I was about to say, almost the opposite in that, there are similarities with Warren and Rotherham in that Taylor's connection to Exeter was a very long-term one. A player, the captain, mm, of course. A, st- a staff member, academy, and then manager. So it's not a million miles away from Mark Bonner, actually, in, in many senses, um, just in terms of, of the longevity that he leaves behind and the connection that he has to that club. Anyway, start of play and basic formation, I'd say, isn't dissimilar to what Warren leaves behind, uh, which should help him. Um uh, it should help him just just not have to change too much too early and, and kind of do so um, a little bit slower and a bit more with a bit more substance perhaps. Um, that doesn't mean that the type of player in certain roles in, in the three five two is is the same. Um, there's been different ways of approaching it, but I'm I th- I said last Monday before all the Bonner stuff that I thought they should hire Matt Taylor and they have. So I'm I'm pleased for him for Rotherham. We'll talk about Exeter later. We'll probably talk about their manager search uh, next week when it's it's kind of, um, yeah, where there's a bit more to talk about on that front. Uh, three home wins to finish off a bumper championship chunk. Blackburn 2, Millwall 1. George, talk to me. I mean, what's to say, really? It was a regulation home win uh, from, from the Blackburn side who uh, are still picking up regular results. Um, you know, they are, are you know, we had, we had the chat about the West Brom and the... Um, and the, the borough situation, it feels like Blackburn are the, the ones enjoying the other side of the coin where they're being incredibly clinical. It was another game where they didn't necessarily um, dominate um, third and scoring the first from some pretty poor defending from Millwall. Um, George Long starting goal for Millwall was uh, very surprising to me. Um, long-term listeners of this pod will remember um, my issues with him when he was at Hull. Uh, the fact that they've got Bartos Bialkowski um, on the bench and playing George Long, I mean, he must be unbelievable in training because... Uh, that that seems bizarre to me, and um, and you know the clangor for the first was uh, the latest in a long line of them that we've seen from him in the past at Championship level. Um, and I wonder how long it'll be till till Bilakovsky is brought back in. Uh, Britton Diaz with it with a second goal soon after making it two 0 uh, before Jake Cooper got one back from a, a set piece, and then uh, Zion Fleming, who's you know, we know how good his Eredivisie record was coming into Millwall. He seemed like a big coup. He seemed to be the, the replacement for Jed Wallace, um, and. He's having a pretty luckless start, start to life in the championship um, with a kind of acrobatic volley, but from pretty close range over the bar that would have got Millwall uh, a point that I think their fans would probably say they deserved and Blackburn fans would say they didn't. Um, yeah, a game of, of, of fairly few chances um, with with Blackburn taking theirs and, and getting another big three points. A game defined by its mistakes, I would suggest. Mm. Like, obviously, the, the the egregious one for the first goal, but even a Fobe flicking on the corner for the second goal, <laughs> flicking it on yeah. right onto the foot of uh, of Diaz. The, the Millwall fans getting a bit restless from what I've seen, a bit bored, as we've, as we've discussed, but the away record's very poor. Only one point from five away games this season. Gary Rowett, where he's got plenty on his mind, not least, Hopefully a, a very rewarding feeling, having run the London Marathon yesterday. Well done, Gary Rowett. Very, very impressive mm. indeed. A Reading 3, Huddersfield 1. George, Reading March on. This was Mark Fotheringham's first game in charge of Huddersfield. Uh, we'll chat about him and his appointment shortly, but let's talk Reading. Uh, this, to me, feels like it was Reading at home all over. Just rattling out wins in an, um, in an effective 
quite unflustered manner. They seem to be able to make their opposition very flustered. That's pretty good skill. Really good. Yeah. I mean, this was a, I've, I've been on a few times uh, downplaying Reading victories. This was uh, very, very cosy, very comfortable, completely deserving of the of the win. Uh, there'll be frustration. They weren't able to keep a clean sheet with Lee scoring late on. Uh, but McIntyre um, from a, a corner and then a couple of, um, well, I mean, Ali Nichols' own goal that he wasn't really at fault for and then uh, a Yaku Mete goal that the Nichols was absolutely at fault for. Um, I think he got very confused about whether or not him picking up a, a pass back would indeed be a pass back. And rather than either catching it or pushing it away, he did kind of both where he went to catch it and then pulled his hand away and, and Mete was able to, to, to prod it home. Uh, Nichols was such a big player for, for Huddersfield last season, um, kind of plucked from almost obscurity uh, and was a huge player for them in their, in their, in their campaign. Um, the playoff campaign, uh, he hasn't had as good a, a season this, this time around so far and, and Huddersfield needs to get him back on track. Um, but yeah, brilliant result for Reading. Interesting, they went to up front with Andy Carroll and Lucas Schwau both playing up front. That is going to be a handful for for any defence. Um, Andy Carroll should be arrested for having the number two on the back of his shirt, in my opinion. Um, but apart from that, it was, yeah, regulation home win and, and Reading still putting it up the doubters um, as to their, their aspirations this season. So Mark Fotheringham, uh, a new name for the championship, certainly in managerial terms, a new name for us as well. I've, I've been looking into him a little bit over the last few days. I must admit my first thought when I saw his name was, I'm sure he was a champ man wonder kid back in the day. Hmm. Uh, had it confirmed by others. I reckon CMO 102 or one of the, the ones either side of that most likely when he was coming through at Celtic. Uh, he, he was someone with undoubted talent who probably didn't have the the playing career expected given that potential but just quite an interesting bloke I think I'm kind of excited to see how he goes he's obviously sh- he showed a lot of openness in his playing career to new environments he played in Germany uh, where he clearly has a great sort of link now uh, Switzerland he played in Cyprus as well um, he actually played more games in the championship than any other league um, mostly for Norwich a spell where the club was not in great shape so I'm not sure he's hugely fondly remembered there to be honest he said earlier this year I'm born to be a manager so that's exciting uh, and it made me wonder George what do you think you were born to do I was born to be a podcaster yeah like sound of his own voice too many ideas yeah that right too many ideas unbelievable and humble as well um I was thinking this I think I was just born to to have fun I love having fun that's one of my things not the alley I know. I think I was born to be competitive. I absolutely love being competitive. And I was born to eat crisps and dip. Absolutely love eating crisps and dip. Like Top three dips. Well, sour cream and chive is, is clear, just consistent quality uh, and very versatile as well for different uh, structures and flavors of crisp. Don't mind a, just a really good hummus with a plain crisp. Probably don't need an, a third. What about you? No. Yeah, sour cream and chive quack and then you know i'm up for anything just not not tiramisu or hummus really because they're gross i think interestingly or, or or actually not in any way interesting um is some sour cream and chive dips have raw onion in it and i do not like that so i always have to check before i buy yeah no not interesting that um fotheringham uh, what's he going to be about well in his own words he's a guy who wants to get as many offensive players on the pitch as possible i'm not sure whether that means offensive as in attacking or offensive as in just big old shit houses i'm hoping it's going to be the latter he said he likes to attack and play with freedom in the last third but also likes to build a real scaffolding in the back where we've got good security there and a good base where we're strong and we're solid so basically wants to be really good going forward and solid at the back which sounds 
very good to me. Uh, said he's a big student of Italian football. So enjoys the way they go and work against the ball, but also likes different countries like Spain, where they like to combine well in the last third. Uh, and of course, I want to bring that Scottish UK spirit to the team as well. So it could just be a great meeting of many footballing cultures. And I would love that. I don't know what it'll look like, but I'll, I'll be excited about that. He was in for the Bochum job uh, about a month ago because he's very highly rated in Germany uh, after some uh, spells as assistant manager, um, most notably last season, to Felix Magat. Remember him? Um rubbing cheese mm. on players um, at Hertha Berlin. They saved them from, from relegation and, and Fodering. Fodering definitely took one game when Magat was ill uh, and everyone was very impressed with him. Um, last quote I liked from him. He said, I'm going to be all about the place. You're not going to get rid of me. You're going to see me, whether I'm taking my three sons for a McDonald's and you say, oh, there's Mark. I like him after that research. I think he could be pretty good and I'm not going to overreact to this defeat in his first game in charge where his players all decided to make terrible individual mistakes, albeit I've seen a bit of Huddersfield Twitter that might well overreact to his first game. Let's see how he goes. Three draws in the championship. Cardiff won, Burnley won. Burnley just love to draw, don't they? Uh, Sunderland nil, Preston nil, which means 11 games gone. Preston have scored three goals and they've conceded four goals continues to be one of the most bonkers things that's ever happened since we've been covering the league. And Sheffield United won Birmingham one was arguably one of the best results of the whole weekend um, for, for, for Birmingham, uh, getting a point at Bramall Lane, the, the Bielik Chong Bakuna midfield, getting a lot of love um, from both sets fans, to be honest, and Troy Deeney in great nick as well. Uh, so there you go. We've got a full championship slate in midweek as well. So uh, no rest for the championship. League one, George, I want to hear you talk for a while. So why don't you do a bad cop in League One? Yeah, bad cop in League One is is Morecambe, um, who went down three one against against Accrington. Um in a in a you know a, a difficult week for a bad cop. I, I couldn't really do Forest Green twice in a week, um, despite them throwing away a two one lead uh, against ten man Burton. Um but with Morecambe, I, I think because we know that Morecambe finishing above twenty-fourth means that they have overperformed where they should be in League One, uh, means that we often give them an easy ride and probably rightly so. Um, but on a week where they went to Accrington, um, Arthur Gnua was sent off for a uh, for an elbow, which looked pretty stupid um, right in front of the ref after 46 minutes. Uh, stupid red cards, often a key facet of the bad cop um, segment we do on this show. Um, and, you know, they lost the game 3-1. Uh, they got back into it through uh, an own goal from Ryan Astley, but weren't able to, to hold on to that that point with Ethan Hamilton scoring a free kick and then Tommy Lee making the point safe uh, to win 3-1. I guess this is mainly kind of a wider point where, you know, immense respect for Derek Adams, but after 11 games now, Morecambe are now rooted in 24th um, with just one win from their 11 games. Uh, and it does feel to me like it's going to be very, very difficult for them to, um, to, to stay up unless we see a, a big turnaround of performances. I know they were absolutely furious with the refereeing here. I think Connor Ripley, the goalkeeper, gave it the old, we played against 12 men. I was expecting, therefore, to see Nahua's red card and think it was really dubious. But certainly from the camera angle that we get and the 10 times I watched it, it looked to me like he caught the Accrington player with a, a forearm or an elbow having sort of flown into an aerial challenge. So I, I personally didn't see a huge issue with that being 
um, considered violent conduct or dangerous play or whatever the the, the phrase would be. Anyway, mm. um, maybe there was other stuff in that game, but um, yeah, bad day for the shrimps. Good day for Aki. Three wins in a row now. Uh, they've flown towards the top of of League One's sort of mid table batch. Uh, my good cop is Dino Mamrias Adebayejo. Dino Mamrias <laughs> Brewer Army with Victor Adeboyejo, the hat-trick hero. Victor Adeboyejo had never scored three goals in a whole season before. Scored three in one what? game. He's now got five for this season. So it's a, it's oh a sneaky word. stat. That is an, um, that's an unbelievable stat. He was on two. He's now on five. He'd never hit three in a season in the league, before you correct me, in the league. And now he has. Um, Burton... Why are they good? Yeah, poor, poor lad scored two early on in 2015 for Royston Town and then couldn't find the net for Hemel Hempstead or Haybridge Swifts to make it three. Don't need to tell me that, mate. I was there for most of it in Royston and Hemel. Um, Burton Albion, let's get back on track. 3-2 winners at Forest Green from behind with 10 men and one of only two teams in the bottom half of League One to win. That helps close the the yawning gaps that were created at the start of the season by their poor form. It's amazing how quickly you can go from looking doomed to looking not that. Um, and what can we say? Dino saw the potential in this squad and he's excavating it. And I love yeah. that from him. You know, a penalty in a red to go down to 10 men after 70 minutes and go 2-1 down. That should be it. And early in the season, no exaggeration, say Burton probably would have conceded another seven or eight from that position, but not in Dino's house. Um, he's got Adebayejo firing. The winning goal was an absolute screamer. Um, just brilliant. And Mustafa Carriol there got picked up on a free after the start of the season. All looked a bit weird. We hadn't seen him in the in the, in the the uh, EFL for a while, but set up the second goal with some brilliant wing play. No one could get near him. It was a great delivery as well. So delighted for Dino, delighted for Burton. Three points, closing gaps, off the bottom. Good stuff all round. Uh, Wickham nil, league leaders Argyle one. George, let's fly back up to the top of the table. Argyle, do it again. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a, a big win for them and impressive again, uh, albeit it was a penalty that, that saw them pick up the three points. Um, thanks to Cosgrave, who continues his decent start in, in an Argyle shirt. Um it was a game of, of quite a few chances. You know, it's, it's only fair sometimes um, we're quick to point out when when some teams um, are kind of maybe overperforming their XG. And there is a slight concern about that with Argyle. Um, Wickham had plenty of chances um, late in the first half to to make it one all. Uh, Cooper, as ever, superb in the, in the Argyle goal. Although, you know, from six yards out, he had a few saves to make where, where he could make them, if you know what I mean. Like when when there was probably the opportunity for Wick, for Wickham players to 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 put balls where he wouldn't be able to make those saves. Um, and it does kind of feel a little bit concerning for me that maybe um, Cooper can only be so good and there's only so much time that Argyle can continue to keep teams at bay. Having said that, um, for Plymouth to be where they are, given their fixture list, is is incredibly impressive. Um, you know, their their recent games have been they've beaten Ipswich, they've taken a point at um at Portsmouth, they've beaten Derby, they've beaten Wickham, um, they've beaten Bolton. You know, they have had one of the and Peterborough, they've had one of the toughest fixtures of any team so far. And maybe we should cut them a bit of slack if the if the, you know the underlying data isn't great, given that the, the quality of the attacking teams they've played against. So 
you know, their, their home games this season have come against uh, four of the top seven, not including themselves, obviously. So, um, and they played um, to to the other top seven um, away from home. So the only team they haven't played yet out of the top seven is Sheffield Wednesday, who they play midweek. Um, so I'm actually going to upgrade it. I'm going to say they've actually had the hardest run of game so far and a top wow. of the league. So literally whilst talking, I've started by saying we need to maybe criticise Plymouth Argyle and I'm now saying they're going to win the league. So there you go. Maybe the only team that can beat them is themselves at this stage. Sam Cosgrove did the damage here. Twinkle yes. toes, as I'm now calling him, dancing in the box, winning, winning a pen in the box uh, and smashing it in and, and keeper Cooper, of course, the, the star man, really. Ipswich 3, Portsmouth 2 was a big game with a big scoreline. 3-2 to Ipswich. Um, Chaplin and Harness, former Pompey boys, combining for Ipswich's first goal. Uh, then they went 2-1 up, and deservedly so. Really nice football. Leif Davis squaring it. Ladapo with the confidence he gained from last week's fluky goal against Argyle, flooding through him uh, and manifesting itself in a b- beautiful left-footed finish. But Ipswich were acting like a betting shop, George, just giving away pens left, right and centre. You like that? Jesus. Yeah. Yes. Both taken and scored by Colby Bishop. Never, um, ever suck on the end of those pens, though. It's one way to get a black mouth. <laughs> Ipswich stuck with it. They were the better side overall. There's no doubting that. Uh, and they got the winner. Kyle Edwards, I think, could become a, a pretty ridiculous bench option if he could stay fit. So quick, so skillful. And uh, getting to the byline, a big slice of fortune with his, his uh, cross getting deflected, ballooning up in the air and just coming down onto the head of Burns, who was on the line uh, to win it for them. So that's the end of Ipswich's really horrible run of fixtures, uh, four points from games against Sheffield Wednesday away, uh, Argyle away, and now Portsmouth at home. So not bad from them. Not amazing, but they've they've come through unscathed. I think I'm definitely a bit hotter on, on Ipswich than you are. Uh, that's probably a discussion for another time. And you know what? I just said it's the end of their tough fixture list. They're going to Cambridge in midweek, so that won't be easy. From a Pompey perspective, my only takeaway is Dane Scarlett looks really sharp, and I think he's going to have himself a game soon a big game where we talk about him a lot more. I'm calling it this weekend, home to Fleetwood, Dane Scarlett, two goals minimum. There you go. It's going to happen. Nice. Another 3-2 came at Stadium MK, but George Peterborough won 3-2, the away side. And I wonder if the 3-2 win is a scoreline that, if anything, flatters Milton Keynes Dons. I think it absolutely flatters Milton Keynes Dons. Uh, Peterborough were as good a value as you can be for 3-0 lead. Uh, possible because you know it's bad when a team is 3-0 up and the best player on the opposition side is their keeper. Um, Jamie Cumming making a a few important saves to keep it at 3-0. The the change of shape has been such a success for for Posh. Um, Looking at their, um, you know, the the, the 4-3-3 that they're now playing, it was a a brave call to take Jack Marriott out, a player who immensely popular there um, who started the season pretty well uh, in terms of, of his goal scoring um, but it's worked and they look back to the you know the free scoring dominating side that, that we're used to seeing uh, MK scored twice in, in injury time uh, to, to get the home fans dreaming of what would have been an incredibly unlike, unlikely point um, but their defensive shape just still looks incredibly poor at the moment um, it, it is bizarre because I can't really remember many managers, especially young managers, having um, two seasons, their first two seasons being so at odds with each other as Liam Manning. Um, and, and, you know, to caveat that, I don't think 
we can expect MK to be a top six team this season because of the players they've got. But in terms of just pure defensive shape and structure, um, it's it's alarming how how poorly coached they look for a manager who I think I, I'm still pretty convinced is, is a very talented guy. It's weird, yeah, isn't it? I mean, he was on championship shortlists a few months ago. Eight championship managers have left this season. Not a whisper anymore, really, about Liam Manning replacing any of the outgoings. He He's... inherited a very good thing last season after Martin left, and he did brilliantly. I'm not saying he, he just... just took it forward. Yeah, yeah, he added to it. This season, he's in charge of a, a slightly less good situation and is massively struggling for answers. So, like, how do you how do you begin to rate managers? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I totally agree. Um, but I think too often, and we'll definitely be guilty of it as well, it's easy to view managerial performance and ability as a very binary thing, whereas actually there is so much going on <laughs> in terms of... Um, behind the scenes in terms of different issues going on in terms of player fitness, in terms of relationships and other things that you've got to look at managerial ability over, over long-term. Um, I'm sure Liam Manning, I mean, I would be amazed if Liam Manning is, is showing the door at MK Dons. Uh, I think the only way that would happen is if uh, later on in the season, relegation is, is a genuine threat um, and they have no, no means of, of changing anything else like yes, after the transfer window. Um, but I think you'll look at long-term trends and, and this season there have been enough circumstances to um, maybe absolve Manning of some of the blame. Having said that, as I say, they, they look like a poorly coached side at the moment, which is is strange to see. Portsmouth nil, Sheffield Wednesday one. Thwack. Thwack. Not a lot happened in this game, in all honesty, no. but one big thing happened and that was Good Will Volks scoring an absolute... How it's a where the hell did that goal come from? What I like is that Volks is it a is, tackle or is it a shot? My point entirely. Volks is basically <laughs> he's playing a different sport because most people would just would just tackle. It's like you're playing FIFA. Press the tackle button for a 50-50. But Volks, he's always been someone that likes to push the boundaries of the game, and he thinks, "What if I tackle and shoot at the same time?" And he's basically mm. just like. He's just found new ways of playing football, effectively. Um, very impressive goal in a game that Vale will probably rightly feel had Volks just tackled and not shot, um, might have ended 0-0. And that might have been a fair result, but it wasn't. Uh, there you go, Sheffield Wednesday picking up three points. And Derby did the same at Cambridge, George. Paul Warren's first game in charge of Derby County. Their first away goals of the season and their first away win of the season. So a pleasing afternoon for Warren and Derby County. Yeah, and interesting to see, um, you know, we saw an immediate shift in the way that they looked to play. Um, you know, we mentioned that they had been aside this season, kind of the passing monsters of the league under Liam Rossini. Um, And that changed. N not, I'm, I'm not suggesting that they suddenly turned into a long ball team, but where they had possession was very different. Um, we saw uh, basically Chester uh, cash in. And and Davis um, retaining the ball in, in deeper areas under under a senior here it was it was Bird it was it was it was Knight it was Harrahan who were getting on the ball way more which is probably you know has to be a good thing getting your creative players on, on the ball as much as possible uh, I think even James Collins completed more passes than than Cashin I think playing up front which just goes to show how much more how quickly Warner's obviously trying to get the ball forward and um, and you know James Collins scoring two goals having not scored. Or, or having kind of struggled early on this season uh, is a very good sign as well. So full marks to, to Paul Warren and his playing staff because going to Cambridge is not easy um, and they made it look easy enough. He obviously injected Collins with confidence or variance, one of the two. Um, mm. I think 
Mendes Lang, right wing back, is going to be a bit of fun. So keep an eye on that. Very impressive first game in charge for Warren. Uh, looked excellent out of possession in particular, I thought. Uh, Fleetwood nil, Barnsley one more away winners. And Barnsley's Mike Duff love affair continues, and I'm enjoying it uh, hugely. Big moment here was Robbie Cundy's clearance off the line, but that was Fleetwood's only shot on target. Cundy dealt with it. Uh, and then in the end, it was a great winning goal right at the end. James Norwood. Um, running the channel, cutting in, crossing onto the head of Jack Aitchison. I, I doubt he has scored many headed goals before, but you wouldn't have known it. It was very, very well placed into the corner. Uh, it just, it, it continues to astound me how much Duff and Barnsley are getting out of basically four attacking players, the only four attacking players they have available for three positions in his 3-4-2-1 or 3-4-1-2. And it's James Norwood, Devante Cole, Jack Aitchison and Luke Thomas. What he's getting from these players, when you compare where they were last season, shall we say, when you compare some of the depth that Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday and, and Portsmouth and even Argyle have, it is, it's, it's pretty sensational. Um, and that's not to say that's the only area of the pitch that's working. You know, they're performing well out of possession as well. Anderson, very good defensively. Kitching, very good in position, uh, in possession rather, the left centre-back. Benson's been excellent in midfield as well. Just quite a few players whose confidence is coming back, playing at the level below, playing in a team that's winning games with a manager that, that seemingly has a firm grip on things. So really good to see. And I'll just share some quotes from Mike Duff that uh, had everyone on my timeline swooning before the weekend. He's talking about culture and the, and the, uh, the setting of culture, bringing, bringing back a good culture. He said, uh, I had to stop training three times in preseason and ask them, what is this? Because it looked like a group of lads having a kick around. The training sessions look like training sessions. Now there's an intensity and a demand on each other because they don't want to lose. Hopefully it shows in games. People are picking up bibs now, not leaving them on the floor. The owners were in last week, but I don't want players to say good morning to the owners and not to the cleaners. Just be a decent person. Run around with a smile on your face. Work hard and hopefully get results. I think that's something that we could all bear in mind going forward. George Bolton 2, Lincoln 0. Bolton 2, Lincoln 0. I think Bolton early on in this game were like me when I have to sign an important document. You know, they had plenty of intent, but they just needed a pen to get going. Any more pen gags you got? I think that might be it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a dominant display. Uh, Lincoln for all of their better form against Derby and um, and the Bristol, Bristol Rovers game couldn't really get anywhere near Bolton's goal. Um, they struggled to create many chances. Uh, Bolton, as you say, needed a penalty from Dion Charles. Um, Dion surprisingly not really getting into many goal scoring opportunities apart from penalties at the moment, um, which I I know because of my to score twice tip on the betting show rather than score first, which mm. was pretty annoying. Um, but uh, yeah, Bolton are just looking. Uh, they're kind of reminding me of what they look like in that second half of the League Two season, where they are just very, very efficient, very effective, very good defensively, solid, not necessarily overly prolific, but more than capable of creating uh, opportunities to win games. Um, they are yeah, definitely a team with a, a circle around them uh, at the moment in my, in my League One table as, as ones to watch. Well, I want to shout out George Thomason. Started the last four games for Bolton. 21-year-old midfielder. They've won all four. And he's currently keeping Aaron Morley out of the team, who we've spoken glowingly about previously. So that's definitely notable. Thomason's a, a, a local lad, a youth product. Uh, broke through a bit in the 2021 season when they won promotion from League Two. He started more than half of their games from December onwards. So he really was an important 
part of that incredible run. But then last season only played 800 minutes. I thought maybe he'd had an injury setback, but then I looked on transfer marked. He was an unused sub 31 times last season for Bolton. So wow. whether it was ever thinking that technically or physically or whatever it was, he needed a bit of time to get up to, to the level, to the higher level. Um, here he is, only 21 and, and certainly looking at home. We had a great write-up on him from Tenzo, a big Bolton fan in NTT20 squad. His best attributes, George Thomason in midfield, are decisions, teamwork, passing, vision his awkward gait masks a creative player full of industry and guile he's one of those players who seems to make the right call in every situation very diligent and his positional awareness to break up transitions is excellent his weight of pass is rarely anything but excellent and he's consistently able to spot players in better positions and find them whatever the angle of the pass that is required you'll see him also often doing unseen work of hassling and harrying opposition into mistakes so there we go uh, someone to keep an eye on for those who enjoy tracking young players george thomas and thriving under Ian Everett at Bolton at this moment in time. Uh, and then Cheltenham 2, Shrewsbury nil. George, uh, was there anything hugely notable out about this one? One goal just before halftime and one just after did the business. Yeah, another one of those displays from, from Shrewsbury where they just couldn't really get going from an attacking sense whatsoever. They created very little. Um, they weren't really able to, to test Ch- Cheltenham even despite playing the, pretty much the whole of the second half from 2-0 down. Um, it does feel like they're... A bit of a Jekyll and Hyde team at the moment, Shrewsbury, um, where um, they either win games and look fairly impressive, or, or they they just don't really show up at all. Uh, and this was certainly one of those. Um, yeah, a good win for Cheltenham, who, who were very very deserving of their win. Um, and you know, Wade Elliott, I think, is is doing a, a pretty decent job of setting them up as a team who are, who are hard to beat. And you went to Charlton one, Oxford one. So we'll we'll let you have your say if there's anything to say. It was an interesting game where um, both. Teams come into it pretty short of form. Um, and in the first half, uh, Charlton didn't have a single shot, which uh, meant that, that the Charlton fans widely, well, all booed their team off. Uh, it wasn't a great first half. Marcus Brown um, scoring a goal and then running over to the Charlton fans, kissing the Oxford badge after he supposedly um, failed the medical. If you speak to a Charlton fan or chose Oxford, if you speak to an Oxford fan uh, before making the move last season. Um, and then in the second half, it was a really good game. Very, very end to end. Both teams had opportunities to win it. Uh, the goal coming from a, a Jaden Stockley header from a yard out. Simon needs to have a bit of a rush, rush of blood to the head and, and looking to go and kind of charge down the Charlie Kirk um, on the edge of the box, which meant that despite there being defenders there, the goal was gaping. And then both teams had had a really good opportunity to win it. Billy Bowden came on as a substitute, um, who is, as we all know, aggressively left-footed, um, managed to chop onto his right foot before uh, lofting the ball over the bar from about eight yards. Yeah, and then Charlton on the counter-attack with their own chance kind of in the last minute. And Dobson uh, kind of got the ball trapped under his feet when sent through one-on-one and, and Simon Eastwood made the save. Um, so probably both teams feeling that they, they could have won the game, neither particularly happy with how things are going at the moment. Uh, the second half from Charlton was definitely much better than the first half. And from an Oxford fan's point of view, it's been such a poor start to the season. Um, it was it was definitely, in my opinion, uh, the best I'd seen us play in, in the league um, so far. Um, so some promising signs, but both teams are way, way off uh, pre-season aspirations of, of promotion. Exeter drew 2-2 with Bristol Rovers. That was Matt Taylor's last game in charge of Exeter City. And we're going to talk about their managerial search next time. Uh, Joe Barton's Bristol Rovers getting a point there. Uh, in League Two, 12 fixtures, George. Six of them finished 2-1. Two of them finished 1-0. And the other four were all draws. So things were very 
tight this week in League Two. Um, we're going to whiz through it. Uh, I'm going to start with Good Cop. And I want to take you to Leighton Orient 1, Newport County 2. Took place not far from where you're sitting right now. Uh, this one is for the Newport fans, particular for Dan, who is one of the NTT20 squad legends who gives us incredible match previews and reviews of Newport County games. And so you can imagine my delight when I heard or saw him say that this was up there with one of his best ever away days because that's what it's all about. And that's why Newport are good cop here because Newport County, make no bones about it, have started poorly this season. And County fans have been dismayed. Their home form has been desperate. Their game management has been poor. Their backbone, absent. And the manager, James Robry, showing signs of pressure as well. And so off they go in that sort of shape to record-breaking Leighton Orient. No team, as we know from last week, has ever picked up 28 points in their first 10 games of a fourth-tier campaign. These confident Londoners with their flash boots and their slick hair and their clean sheets and their efficient attacking play and their lofty league position. But it wasn't a viral Michael Sheen monologue that spurs Newport County on. It's the passion of the travelling fans. It's the sense of duty, a demonstration of professional and personal pride. Because what happened here? Well, the match started and Leighton Orient were looking slick and confident, bouncing passes off each other and darting past defenders and getting some shots off, but none of them too troubling to the Newport goal. After 20 minutes, Orient had had 78% possession, six shots to one, but that one had been the best chance of the game. Aaron Wilding stabbing wide, nice ball over the top from Lewis, and that was a warning to the City Slickers from Leighton. And then a set piece, a corner to Newport, a deep delivery, bodies banging together inside the box. One of them separates itself from the pack, and its head connects with pig's bladder, or is it leather, whatever it is nowadays, Will Evans, 1-0. Will Evans, brave son of Chlan Gedwin, over 100 games for Cardiff Metropolitan University Football Club, over 50 games for Bala Town in the Welsh divisions, and now an EFL goalscorer in the league for the first time. And guess what? He gets a taste for it. Will Evans, what's the one thing the people of Powys say about their favourite son, Will Evans. It's that he is a pressing monster. He never stops running and he disrupts the opposition. He sniffed an opportunity. Lawrence Figaro wanted to do a bit of spraying. His distribution right up there in League Two terms. But Evans nips in and Vigaru boots him. Penalty. Vig's third penalty concession of the season. And unlike the other two, wow. he doesn't save it. He does not save it. Bogle scores 2-0 Newport. The second half doesn't need much. I just need to tell you that an excellent Tom James free kick bounced off the inside of the post, was tapped in by Drynan, but Newport didn't crumble. If anything, it seemed to focus their minds. They saw it out. Their task was clear and their success was divine. And East London was amber for the day. Newport County. Any bad cop in League Two? Yeah, I, I felt a bit bad with this. I mean, there, there are some bad cops we could have dished out um, to, to regular receivers of the award. I think I'm going to give it to Button, um, a team that I've got a lot of respect for, a Matt Graham manager I've got a lot of respect for. But uh, anyone who listened to the pod last week would have heard our um, 
dismantling of of Gillingham um, and their performances so far this season. But but Jills were were very very good value for their for their 1-0 win, even though they left it late with an Alex McDonald header. Um, Gillingham had three goals disallowed in the first half. They were by far the better side. Sutton created very little, if anything, of note. And, uh, and I'm guessing Neil Harris just took our podcast and put it on the dressing room wall in, in midweek because it was a a massively improved performance from them. First Ooh. open play goal of the season. Yeah. Their 11th I game. I mean, unbelievable. Um, but players who, who should be good for the level, you know, whether it's um, Haki Bedelikan, um, who, you know, the, at League Two, he should be able to, to, to dominate at least some games. He's not the most consistent, but he certainly has um, the, the skill um, and pace to... To, to trouble teams from from wide areas in, in League Two, uh, and we saw it for, for one of the rare occasions so far this season. Um, Sean Williams as well had a very good game in centre midfield. Um, it, it's not a bad side, this Gillingham side. They've just been well. There are enough players in there uh, that they should be able to, to to put in more performances like this because they were very very good value at home against a uh, you know a, a, a mid table possibly better League Two side. So all credit to them, but but Sutton didn't really show up. And for Sutton, um, having made a, a very strong start to the season, back to back defeats, having lost to um, Salford uh, the week before as well, and it doesn't get much easier with them going to two of the most informed teams in the league next up in Stevenage, and um, and then they they host Tranmere after that. Gills have scored three goals in 11 games and accrued 10 points, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. So there you go. I remarked on it. Well done, Gills. Well, Sad for Sutton. I like how you said, I feel a bit bad about this one as you performed your role as bad cop. And it made me wonder, do you think in a good cop, bad cop scenario, you know, within the police force, do you think the bad cop feels bad about it? Do you think he goes home and feels bad about it? Or do you think he's like, that's my job though. That's my job. I mean, I think it depends on the crime. You know, if like Sutton, if it's if you know it's a guy who's come up from from relative obscurity, he's he's, you know, he's a self-made man. Um, he, you're impressed with what he's doing in life, but then you catch him doing a bit of a crime where you're like, oh, like he's 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 doing a wee on the side of the street, walking back from the pub, and you're like, mate, Saturday night here, like you're a good lad, but I'm gonna have to nick you. That's what I've done. Nice. Colchester United have a new manager, and they went external. Can you believe it? I can't. Uh, Matt Bloomfield, or Mr. Wickham, as he was known at Wickham. This was announced in fairly farcical fashion, where Colu said, we're going to announce our new manager at three o'clock, even though everyone kind of knew who it was. And then just before three o'clock, they went, actually, sorry, we've been caught up with something. We're not going to announce our manager until 3.30. But Wickham, I suspect, I don't know this for sure, they had already scheduled their website post. So at three o'clock, the previously agreed time, Wickham announced the departure of Matt Bloomfield to become manager at Colchester United. And so possibly the first time that one EFL club has announced the appointment of another club's manager. Anyway, Matt Bloomfield, um, what do we think about this, George? Uh, I mean, he has been described as born to lead by uh, the Wickham press release he certainly speaks very well i watched his his uh, 10 minute interview um i guess he might have aced his interview with robbie cowling uh, the chairman and or uh, some of those in charge of the football side of things at colchester um it's difficult to know exactly what to expect isn't it he's been at wicked wanderers in various capacities for 19 years so do we expect some gareth ainsworth influences it'd be hard not to be influenced by gareth ainsworth would it yeah, you have to think um, working under a manager is 
as influential as Ainsworth is, is going to be a good thing. Uh, having said that, um, we know that uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's crop of players haven't gone on to be the greatest managers themselves. That's not like a, a prerequisite for for being a good manager is, is playing under one. Um, but Bloomfield, from everything we know of him, um, a, a very early guest on this podcast um, all those years ago um, and someone who, um, when I was once working at Adams Park for Five Live, um, I kind of, whenever you do Five Live stuff or, or back when Sports Report was an hour, um, you'd have to hang around at the game afterwards and wait for for chappers to, to buzz in. So you'd always stay at the ground for another hour after after the game finished, which was very cold. Um, but uh, I remember doing it once at Wickham and Matt Bloomfield just did his own warm down on his own. I, well, he wasn't even a warm down. I think he, he was running laps of the pitch. I think he was an unused sub. And because he hadn't had his run out, he just went out and just started running laps as just a means of getting his exercise, um, which I think probably speaks, well, firstly, it, it tallies with what we know as him as a, as a professional um, and it pretty speaks volumes about his work ethic as well. You know, he's someone who sets very high standards for himself, has been, um, has played such, so many games and been so loyal to one club. I think on the face of it, having a loyal player who's a very good talker, who is is clearly incredibly committed, um, should make for a very good manager, um, whether or not he has a tactical acumen. We're going to find out in the next few weeks. As we've said a couple of times, someone should be able to make something of this squad. And by something, I'm setting a pretty low bar. I mean, better than what we have seen over the last year or two. It's not an amazing squad for the level. And it's not been put together, I don't think, very thoughtfully with a lot of planning in terms of balance and positions, etc. But there are a lot of players whose names I can say in a certain way for dramatic effects to show that there's something to work with. You know, Bezla Bala, Noah Chilvers, Matty Longstaff, Kwesi Appiah, Freddie Sears, Alan Judge, Alex Newby. And that's just the attacking midfielders and attackers. So there you go. They went to Wimbledon, lost 2-1. Uh, big one from a Wimbledon perspective. Hadn't won for a while. Needed it. Needed to pick up some momentum, if you like, some form. In other words, after a good point at Bradford last week. Um, Ayub Asal winning the penalty that won it for them in the most Asal fashion ever. Just just all tenacity and, and and nipping in there before a defender cleared it and ended up just clearing his leg. And obviously, Asal really wanted the penalty as well, but he didn't get it. Davison stuck it away for his brace. Nick Sanev, a big moment at the end for him. Uh, we've spoken about him lacking a bit of confidence a couple of weeks ago in that game against Northampton. Well, big save to secure three points should hopefully um, fill him with exactly what he was lacking. And then just an update on the old right wing-back situation at Wimbledon, which I feel like I've mentioned quite a few times. Uh, Gunter missed the game at Bradford because he was away with Wales. Ogundere, the youngster, played at right wing-back. Um, Gunter then returned and took Will Nightingale's slot at right centre-back because Nightingale was out injured. Ogundere continued at right wing-back. And I think just very naturally, given the type of players that they are, what they can offer physically more than anything, I, th- I think it gives a clear improvement in many ways, particularly in possession in an attacking sense for Wimbledon. But Ogundere is a young player and he did get somewhat dunked on by Kwesi Appia, who headed home over the top of him for, for Colchester's goal. So um, might be some pros and some cons of that. I think the pros probably outweigh the cons and I hope to see Ogundere get a run there at right wing back. Um, not dominant this Wimbledon, not a magical performance by any means, but, but certainly progress. Um, 
they've won three games this season and they've been against Gillingham, Crawley and Colchester. So three of the five sort of worst performers from the early part of the season. I'll, I'll be getting more excited if Dons can beat, for example, Walsall away in their next game or mm. Sutton at home in the one after that. Let's see how they go. You touched on Crawley one, Stevenage two, George. Stevenage did the business, but... But... but just a new Crawley way of asking. right. There you go. Um, yeah, they were. Uh, it was, uh, you know, this was my nap in the betting show. Uh, we won't talk about your selection in the betting show. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was it was way better from Crawley. Uh, we have to say, you no, know, Stevenage are um, very much a, a top, um, you know, a, a top six side. I think that's pretty obvious to us now. Um, they, they were, you know, they were good value for the win. I'm not by any stretch saying that they were, they were fortunate to do so. Uh, but Crawley at least showed uh, a little bit more uh, attacking intent, certainly. You know, they, not many teams create too many chances against Stevenage, but but Crawley did well in that respect. Um, and at one all, you know, they look like they're on their way to a a, a deserved point. Uh, although we should say Jordan Roberts's goal was an unbelievable finish for, for the opener for Stevenage. Um, but, you know, when, when things aren't going your way, they don't go your way. And, and, and you know, Stevenage got the the penalty to win it, uh, to win it 2-1. And Crawley were up when I built to, to create too much after that in order to, to try and draw the game. Um, but it's probably the first sign of green shoots, I would say, uh, more so than the 3-2 win over Stockport, which really flattered to deceive. I think this was signs that Crawley are starting to, to work out um, what to do. And it came against a good side. In their last two games, they've conceded penalties for handballs at 1-1. And that just feels quite unfortunate on top of what had been a bad run before then. Um, Stevenage... Oh, this is quite a fun quirk of the game. And this is more about the, the type of player both teams have and the style that they approach. But Stevenage won 44 aerials to Crawley's 18, which is 71% aerial win percentage against 29%. You don't see that imbalance very often, um, which I thought was quite funny. And Stevenage's heat map, I tweeted yesterday morning, um, over 300 likes, because it really is one of the most spectacular things you will see. And one of the most amazing distillations of very direct attacking play, but incredibly effective direct attacking play because there is a, a huge hole in the middle of the pitch. The centre circle has no action in it in terms of Stevenage being on the ball in the centre circle. Their passes are played in their own defensive third, mostly by their defensive three. And they are long passes and they either end up winning the second ball, recycling it wide to the wing-backs who then cross into the box, or they keep it with the midfielders, Gilby, etc., Taylor, Reeves, um, trying to win the second balls and start from there. They, they start their attacks in the final third, they bypass the middle third, continue them in the final third quite often, and it's working very, very well, but it does make for an amazing touch map. I didn't, I didn't actually mean it to slag them off either, because the one thing that's important with any touch map or pass map, whatever it is, look at Crawley's penalty box, it is full of Stevenish touches. They get into the opposition box at will and from there they create problems. Uh, eight wins in 11 for Stevenage, all of them by a single goal this season, which is kind of funky. Uh, their first goal was a, a beautiful display of direct play. Can we agree from now on in, whenever we reference one of our own tweets, we have to follow it up with how many likes it got? Yes. I'm going to talk quickly about Swindon 1, Northampton 2 because... We all know what you're going to say, so we don't need to hear it this week. Maybe next week. Yeah, this fine. was a game which had a very, very quiet first half with next to nothing happening. Uh, and then it sparked into life after Swindon took the lead on the hour mark. It was a, a, a nice little bit of combination play between Wakeling and Williams. 
uh, which ended with Williams putting them ahead. But unfortunately, it kind of sparked cobblers into life. Uh, it was all about Fox and Pinnock after that. Uh, firstly, Pinnock's pinpoint provision. Fox's flick fantastic for the equaliser. And then Fox had a taste for it, dug out a magnificent cross for Pinnock. It was uh, it was Ben Fox personified. He, he won the ball with a crunching tackle. He got up, he darted forward, left his midfield partner or his opposite man for dead and then drifted out wide and, and produced some real quality. Brilliant, brilliant play, basically winning the game. What was a tight game for, for Northampton? So the, the Northampton stats, well, they've won 10 points from losing positions. Mentality monsters, some would say. They're the top scorers in the whole EFL. 23 goals from 11, uh, just over two goals per game. And it's a balanced diet every single game of one open play goal and one set piece goal. And that's what it was as they feasted on Swindon Town here. Why don't you tell me about Harrogate 1, Bradford 2? Yeah, a deserved win this one uh, for Bradford, I thought, who continue their, their kind of improvement as the season goes on. Uh, Andy Cook scoring the penalty uh, to get ahead. Um, and then uh, Harrogate coming back into the game uh, to make it one all, uh, and, and you know Bradford eventually getting the winner uh, to win it two one. As I say, it wasn't a classic. It still kind of feels like for a good side, Bradford don't often uh, really blitz a team, um, but um, they you know they're, they're they're very very solid. Mark Hughes got them set up pretty well. Um, it was a game, yeah, a few chances. Harrogate still to me. It feels like they, I mean, if you're looking at their recent run, um, they've got just one point from their last uh, seven games, um, just the one draw which came uh, at Stockport. Um, they themselves had a pretty difficult run of fixtures. You know, their last four have been against Salford, Stockport, Stevenage and, and Bradford. Um, I think we're going to find out a lot more about them now. You know, they go to Colchester for Matt Bloomfield's first game and charge next uh, in a game between two sides towards the bottom and three home games in a row the first two of which against Hartlepool and Morecambe. Um, so, uh, yeah, Simon Weaver, I'm sure, will be looking to, to put a tricky run behind them. Uh, and this is where they have to pick up points if they want to uh, get themselves away from that drop zone. Because at the moment, um, that unlike Rochdale, unlike Crawley, uh, at times other, other teams, you know, Gillingham, it doesn't feel to me like they are abject. They're just um, basically coming off worse in, in tight games at the moment. And, and this is where they've got to turn that around. Lovely little lifted finish from Tyreek Wright to win this one. Yeah, very um, good. A hint of offside. I did pause it on the on the pass, and it was difficult to say from the angle that we had, but no question around the quality of the finish. Uh, and I just it took me until this match to really realise that Alex Gilead has been fully rebranded re as like a ratty defensive midfielder from a <laughs> from a from a winger. Um, and I read up about it. Mark Hughes recommended it to him. Uh, from what I can tell, his job is basically to recycle the ball, play pretty short, simple passes, keep it simple in possession, and then win loads of second balls and, and, and tackles with the energy that he has and basically just enable Richie Smallwood to ooze class next to him. So there you go. That's working pretty well. Bradford, not exactly purring, are they? But they are accumulating points in a way that they haven't done in years. Um, and I would suggest are the sort of team that I could see being quite robust through the winter months as the nights get longer. Mm. You know, good base, good solid defensive foundation and tons of attacking options to filter through when the injuries hit. Tramia one, Barrow nil, a true 1-0 win this um, and deservedly so, albeit not dominant. Tramia took an early lead, defended it really well, had the better of the chances without needing to, to sort of move the needle, push the envelope and other phrases like that, which mean nothing really. Um, and, and they're in good shape at the moment, aren't they? I've seen fans saying that actually... 
showing Mickey Mellon patience was all that was needed. And, and, and this is the result of that. I mean, I'm still waiting to see, see what their sort of consistent performance level will be. Um, they're in good nick at the moment. And it's just a nice balanced 4-4-2. The back four, probably the strongest area at the moment uh, with Dakers, Cogley and Bristow, the fullbacks, picking up a lot of plaudits. And then Simeo and, and Turnbull as well, the centre-backs, really strong defensively recently. You've got Merry and O'Connor just sort of ratting in midfield. Uh, and then Hawks and Morris on the wings, both nice and direct and, and Hawks on the left scoring the goal here in general, providing a, a goal threat. I think that they lack outside of their strikers and, and the front two was Hemmings and Nevitt here. Uh, Nevitt was a real handful. Um, so there we go. One nil win for Tramir, a good win. Good form continues. Rochdale one, Doncaster two. What happened here? Donny um, with a, a big win for them, continuing their decent form uh, for Rochdale frustration. I think uh, they've had a couple of um, not false dawns, but, you know, under um, Jim Bentley, we've seen a couple of games where it looks like they are going to improve pretty rapidly, you know, coming here off the back of a 1 0 win at Colchester, um, but unable to um, get anything out of a, uh, a fairly tight, fairly jab game against Doncaster. Um, Scott quickly with their goal. Kieran Agard scored a decent finish to make it 1 0. Uh, and George Miller continues his really good start to life at Doncaster um, with his sixth goal of the season through 11 games. One of those players that we always hear is a very good finisher without being particularly prolific, but he does look like at Donny, he's found a, a home where he's going to score a few goals. And after a, a really difficult uh, run of games for Donny, um, I think back-to-back wins scoring six goals, uh, albeit against two of the poorer sides in the league, is is, is a big deal for Gary McSheffrey and, and they go to Hartlepool as well in midweek. Um, Keith Carr doesn't like he's improved them but they'll, they'll fancy their chances of making it nine from nine well one of the four draws in league two this week was Hartlepool's point at Mansfield last gasp two all draw Umera off the bench at the double from two nil down to two two uh, again positive signs under Keith Curl Mansfield throwing three points away you have to say with some really wasteful finishing Stockport drew one all with Walsall a late equaliser from a corner from Walsall Stockport won't believe they haven't held out for three points Salford one Grimsby one looks like Grimsby actually the away side were probably the better of the two here uh, their away form and performances continuing to impress and Carlisle nil crew nil was a match that happened at the confluence of the rivers Eden Caldew and Petterill. There we go, George. There we go. Wow. One of our longest ever pods. I absolutely love these leagues. Thank you for the journey. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You were indeed born to podcast of that. I've no doubt. Mm. Uh, And I was born to have fun. That's what I'm going to go do now. Please. If you've enjoyed this podcast, so you haven't done that for the last two and a half hours. No, I've been working. Yeah. Not the time to have fun when you're working. Love what you do and you'll never do a day's work in your life. Thanks for the advice. I might look into that. (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast, why not tell a friend about it? Why not retweet it on social media or something like that? Tell everyone. Let's keep it going. Let's keep loving these leagues together, talking about it, enjoying it. Thank you very much to Betfair for their continued support of this podcast. And we'll be back in the second half of the week with a betting show. How about that? Have a good week. Go out.